0: She will help you. Thank you. So, we're going to see how this goes tonight because I have to use my notes off my paper. So, anyways. Oh, good idea. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. So, we just trust God in all things, right? We've been praying about this. I didn't think to pray that this would all work. So, anyway, I am. Very hopeful that this will be helpful to you guys tonight and that um, maybe you'll learn some things you didn't know. That's the goal. So in light of all of that, let's pray and get started. Father, we do thank you for your wonderful grace and your mercy. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to study your word. And Lord, how often we take it for granted, how often we don't really have grateful hearts for the fact that we have your word readily available to us on the internet, in many copies in our homes. We have commentaries. We have study tools. We have everything we could possibly imagine to know your word. And yet, Father, how often we neglect it. We do not prioritize it. Please forgive us. Father, as we come here tonight and we think about uh, the the entire Bible and and looking at an overview of it, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought. I pray that all this information would not be confusing because it can be very overwhelming and confusing. I pray that you would help each lady here to to glean some things that perhaps she hasn't known before that she would learn and grow. But ultimately, Lord, there's no point in our knowledge if it is not geared toward worship. And so I pray that the knowledge that we gain here tonight would give us a greater desire to know you and to worship you. We thank you so much, and, and I do pray for the complications with the PowerPoint and the notes and all of that. I pray that it would, it would still present smoothly in spite of the, the challenges. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so <clears throat> first of all, we are going to look at a very messy picture here because I want you guys to know that you can study this stuff on your own. A couple of years ago, I realized my lack of understanding as far as the, the minor prophets went. And I thought, I have got to learn the minor prophets, and I have got to understand how they fit together. So this right here is my very messy, just it's the backside of notes from... From one of the church sermons and I just had it in my Bible and I started making notes as I went and so I just made my little thing you can see the the numbers on it and I was trying to understand like when the deportations were when the exile was and all that different kind of stuff and just wrote it there this is not really what you guys are gonna be looking at tonight because that's super messy and it probably only makes sense in my brain but the beauty of it is obviously I've been holding on to it for probably two and a half years (laughs) And I keep referring back to it because when I forget, I'm like, oh, when was Nahum again? Or um, when was Malachi? I can look on there and I can go, oh, that's right. And it immediately brings it back to mind. So anyways, tonight as we go through, uh, really we're going to spend most of our time in the Old Testament. Because I think most of us have a fairly good idea of the New Testament. And really the New Testament only covers about 100 years. And so I think that you'll probably be okay. I do have uh, a handout that you should have that has the entire timeline from creation through to to John writing Revelation. So you have the whole thing. But we're really going to focus on the Old Testament because I think that's where we're most rusty. And especially as we get into when the kingdom divides and how the books fit together and all that kind of thing. And the other thing I just really want to say. So Probably, I would guess, in a group this size, we probably have a lot of different places where people are in their knowledge. Some of you are probably looking at this going, I really don't have a whole lot of idea about how this fits together at all. And others of you are probably like, yeah, I've got a fairly good grasp on that. So my goal is that, Lord willing, you will learn something that would be helpful to you tonight if you are one of the newer ones to the the chronology of, of the Old Testament specifically, Don't be intimidated by all the facts you hear. If you hear a bunch of stuff, don't even worry about filling in the, the handouts you have if it's overwhelming to you. I would rather that you just listen, pay attention to the slides, and grasp it that way, and just get an overall idea than to feel frustrated because you're trying to fill in all the blanks and you just can't quite get it, and you, and now you're feeling overwhelmed. If, if you need to just sit back and listen, please do that. Because the goal is for you to learn. So whatever way is easiest for you, Please do that. So anyways, we're going to start here with the books of the Bible. Um, And I'm going to have to be turning these as I go. So we'll see how this works for us okay so just really quick we have this is all of them the old testament and the new testament and you can see on there the different categories we have the law we have books of history poetry the major prophets and the minor prophets we are going to say very very little about the poetry because probably most of you have a fairly decent understanding of psalms and proverbs and you know like the, those kind of things are a little bit more familiar we are going to spend a little bit more time in the major and minor prophets It's trying to help you understand how those things fit together. And then, of course, you have in the New Testament um, the the Gospels, history of Jesus, the history of the church, which is Acts. You have Paul's letters to the churches, which is kind of nice seeing it divided up like this. Paul's letters to individuals, and then you have letters by others. So you can divide these up in different ways, but this is what worked for that. And then we have the Old Testament books in chronological order. I think you do have these handouts as well, and you can either look at them up here or you can look at them in your lap, but mostly these are just for you to reference later if you want to, because everything that you have in your lap is gonna be up on the PowerPoint tonight. So you can kind of get a feel here for like, Job is the same time as Genesis, Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. So as we go through this, you can kind of understand how some of these books really overlap. And particularly when we get to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, that those two books cover a lot of time and a lot goes on in those two books. So we're going to spend a fair amount of time there because that's where most of your prophets are in those books. So anyways, this I'm not going to keep going here. This is just to give you um, a general idea. So this is another timeline that you have, and this is the one, uh, I don't know how good it is to read up there. Hopefully your copy looks better than what mine does, but you have... All the way starting from creation, and it goes, like I said earlier, all the way to John writing the book of Revelation. And I, I really appreciate this. Actually, we were trying to find one, and Rachel and I actually found this one today, and felt like it, it actually has really good information. And even if you look at the period, the silent period, in between the Old and New Testament, it, it kind of gives you a few facts of what was going on in the world during that 400-year period, which is helpful as well. So this is just... Taking it, so I'm giving you a lot of timelines here. Hope I'm not overwhelming you already. (laughs) But this is a simplified version of kind of what you just were looking at, only it's just the Old Testament. So you can see here that we have, uh, first of all, the patriarchs, and then we have Israel when Israel was formed, and then we move into the judges. And then we have the the kingdom started with the monarchy and we have a united kingdom at first. We're going to talk about this in more detail, but you can see there the united kingdom. So the kings that were part of that were Saul and David and Solomon. And then after Solomon, the kingdom split and we had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so that's where things get really kind of a little fuzzy because then we have prophets prophesying to the northern, and some to the southern and um, all of that. But then, okay, so then we have uh, also then Judah alone and then uh, Judah in exile. Now, Judah alone, let me explain that really quick and we will see that in just a minute as well. So I'm just giving you a really brief overview here. But Judah alone after the divided kingdom is because the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom, which was Israel, in 722 BC. And then after that, we still had the... the did I say southern? I meant northern. I did say northern. Okay. You just never know. The, the southern kingdom was Judah, and they did not go into captivity until 605 B.C. So we have that time frame in there, which is Judah alone. And then Judah goes into exile into Babylon, and they are there for 70 years, and then they go back into the land called the Restoration when they are restored back to the land and really restored back to God as well. So that kind of gives you just a broad overview. So now we're going to start really looking at it a little bit more closely. So first of all, we have the Pentateuch, or can be referred to as the Torah as well. So Pentateuch is just the Greek word for these five books of the Bible, and Torah is the Hebrew word for it. So basically what we have here is... The, the foundation for the rest of the Bible. Yes? Oh, I do not think you do have that one. Sorry. and I. Th- yeah, that might be confusing. Rachel and I were talking about that today, and I thought I might have left the titles on there. So, yeah, just raise your hand if for some reason you're having trouble and it's like, where are we on the, the notes so that I can make sure that you're keeping up with me. So anyways, um, basically, this is just an overview. We're going to look at all of these things in a little more depth as we go. But I wanted you to see all together the first five books of the Bible, because really what's happening here is God is establishing who he is and and the way he's going to go about planning redemption for for us. So anyways, we will begin in Genesis. And this is why I need my glasses, because I have to read off of this. Sorry. So... I wanted to begin by reading a quote from Ken Ham, and it's a little bit long, but I think that it's helpful just in understanding why are we studying, first of all, the Old Testament, and specifically, why would we be studying the Pentateuch and then Genesis? Why is this important? So, Ken Ham says this: What I found in the church in America and other places in the West it's, is there's an emphasis on teaching the good news of the gospel in the sense of the death and resurrection of Jesus and our need for salvation, which is all grounded in Genesis. Also, I find there's often significant teaching on Revelation and end times. But how much teaching is there on Genesis and specifically Genesis 1 through 11? Not that much. I've even experienced some conservative pastors tell me it is too controversial for them to teach Genesis 1 through 11 because some people in the church believe in evolution and in millions of years. So it would create division within their church because they want to avoid division. They avoid teaching Genesis except in a very general sense. But Genesis 1-11 through is the foundation for the whole Bible, for all our doctrine, and for our Christian worldview. That's why we start with Genesis. How well do you know the book of Genesis? And I felt like Chris yesterday could not have laid a better foundation for what we're doing tonight with his encouragement toward the Old Testament. And the funny thing was, Craig had taught Sunday school yesterday morning. And if any of you were there, you're getting like triple doses here, because Craig, not knowing what Chris was going to say, said some similar things about the importance of knowing the Old Testament. It is vital, and particularly as we look at Genesis. So, oh, I didn't mention, if you have your Bibles, I want for you to um, open them, and whenever you see these orange references I want you to be able to follow along with me and have your Bible because so often we come and we see our little PowerPoint, our presentation, and actually this kind of happens in LBI and we're trying to do better this year. This is our goal. We want you in your Bible. We want you familiar with your Bible. And here's the thing. I'm a paper person anyway, so I prefer the Bible. But more than that, there there is a reference point to being able to flip back and forth, to being able to underline, to be able to write in your Bible. Do that. Learn your Bible by using it. Open it. It's so important to know your Bible. And if all you're doing is reading off of a phone, you're not going to have some of those additional helps that will help you to memorize it. So particularly you young people that have only grown up in a world of internet and online and phones, be old fashioned and go for the the paper Bible. So anyways, um, I have a reference on here somewhere. This is the challenge. Maybe not. Okay, so y'all want to just say Genesis 1-1 with me? (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Okay, so there you go. You saw the first verse. Um, So God the creator. um, There is one God, the creator. And then we have the fall. So this is just kind of the overview of Genesis here. Then we have the flood, God punishes sin. And then Abraham, God calls and promises. Then we have Isaac, God is faithful to keep his covenantal promises. And then Jacob, God elects and protects. And God, okay, so here we go, God chooses Jacob. And then Joseph, God preserves his covenant people. So he provides through Joseph to his family who are going to become the Israelites, the Jews, he provides through Joseph in Egypt. So then, with creation here, we have, sorry, I'm not seeing my references here. Well, maybe I'll just have to open my Bible. Good thing I brought it. So anyways, uh, as far as creation goes, obviously we don't have anybody that was there that can remember and that can give us the exact time frame of this. And so creation basically is probably somewhere between 10,000 and 6,000 BC, just depending on different ways that you try and figure that out. Um, and the things that we can learn from creation is that God is self-existent. He is eternal. He creates from nothing. God created the earth and all it contains. God created humanity. And God created everything in total perfection. So Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So when God created, and this I realize is very probably just Reminding you, you know this, but when God created, He made everything perfect. But it is really important to grasp the significance of this, particularly as we go on, because what do you often hear from unbelievers? Well, why would a good God let all these bad things happen? Why would He take His people and have His people go and wipe out entire nations? So we need to understand that when God created, He created everything. Absolutely perfect. So then I wanted to recommend just a couple of books to you guys as well. So I did not make it all the way through this book. I probably got about halfway, um, which is very sad because this is a fabulous book. Uh, Paul R. House, Old Testament Theology. If you want a really good overview of the Old Testament, I would highly recommend getting this book because it's not just a survey. A survey is is basic facts, but this is a theology, and so what he does is he basically takes the thread of who God is and just threads it all the way through so you are seeing God in all the books of the Old Testament, so I would highly recommend this. So I am going to quote out of that a couple of times. So he says, the incomparable solitary God has made an ideal world for a fully rational, relational, functional human race that in turn enjoys work, sex, and spiritual pursuits. So then we have the fall next. So God's command is disobeyed. So God commanded Adam and Eve to what? not eat the fruit. And because they did that, sin enters the scene. Humanity experiences the consequence of sin. Their ease with one another is shattered. The cover they covered their naked oh, they cover sorry there's a typo there. they cover their nakedness because of their shame. Their communion with God is broken. They hide from God, their grasp of truth is broken and they blame others for their sin. And ultimately, the, the, the most serious consequence of sin is death. And not just physical death, but eternal death. Separation from God forever and ever and ever with eternal wrath of God on you. So God imposed consequences as well. So the serpent will crawl and eat dust. The woman will experience pain in childbirth. And she will seek to rule her husband. So if any of you are married... We probably can relate to that in some sort of sinful way or another because we like our own opinions and we just know the truth of that. The man will experience the continual difficulty in work. So work is cursed, but it's important to remember that work itself is not bad. God ordained work before the fall. The difficulty of work is the result of the fall. So the fact that we have to work is not the problem. Work is fabulous. I love to work, sometimes I love it too much. Anyways, but it's the fact that the difficulty of work, that's where we see the curse. So, again, with the fall, God displays mercy to his creation. So, there's a couple of things I want you to see threads as we go through these things. And you can see right here I have in blue, God displays his mercy to creation. And... In this very brief overview, I still want you to see God. I want you to see his character. I want you to see his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and his grace. Because we can get lost in the uck of sin and the rebellion of man. And so we need to see God in this. So every time you see the blue, it is The mercy and the grace of God that we see. So, God displays mercy to his creation. God clothes Adam and Eve. The first death, so this is interesting. So, the first death for sin occurs because of the sin of Adam and Eve, because God killed an animal to cover them. God removes them from the garden so they will not eat from the tree, which is also the tree of life, which is also a grace and mercy of God and God promises a deliverer. So Genesis 3:15 and 16 says, "And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed; he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." To the woman he said, he said, "I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth." In pain, you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I think I only meant to have Genesis 15 on there. So anyways, Genesis 15, though, as you look at that, this is the very first uh, foretelling of a Savior to come. So right here at the very beginning, at the fall, we have that God already has made provision for man's sin by planning to send his son. So then sin spreads Cain kills Abel, and then the generations continue. And Lamech, he was a murderer and a polygamist. So then we have Genesis 4, and 24. And it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Bragging about his wickedness and his sinfulness. So you can see that, of course, Adam and Eve sinned, but then sin just continues through the human race. Of course, this is what we wrestle with. So then we have the flood and... Genesis 6-5 says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How far into history are we? Well, we're only six chapters into the Bible, and what are we told that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The problem is not that we don't have a loving God. The problem is man is bent on his own way which is an absolutely excuse me an absolute rebellion to God and God's way. So God destroys humanity for their sin. So Genesis 6:13 says, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. So God is going to destroy the sin. So God calls Noah to build an ark. And God commands Noah, God commands, and Noah then obeys in faith. So the other thing you're going to see, not as much of, but you're going to see a little bit of a theme of men who walked by faith. And those are going to be in green because, again, it's themes that I want you to see. So God, is mercifully, God mercifully preserves the human race through Noah and his family. So eight people God uses to preserve humanity. Did he need to do that? He could have entirely wiped out everybody, but he didn't. So God establishes the first covenant, which is, and he uses the rainbow as the the symbol of that. So covenant is a binding agreement that includes pledges, responsibilities, and blessings. And we will see as we move through this that God establishes various covenants with different people over the years. So the covenant separates Noah from sinful humanity of that era. So God promises never again to destroy the world with a flood. And even we know that right after the flood, they get off the boat. We know that um, sin is still occurring because of what happens with, with Ham and Noah. Um, when Ham, anyway, I, I, won't, I don't have time. We need to stick with this. Anyways, sin is just right there. <laughs> okay, so Tower of Babel. So then we move on, and sin continues. Despite all God has done to create, sustain, correct, and renew, humanity continues to pursue sin. I think that word pursue is important because it's not like they just happen to fall into it or accidentally do a mistake. They are pursuing sin, pursuing their own will. The people build a city to honor themselves, which is the Tower of Babel. And yet God rescues them. Now, not in the sense of a savior, but he does rescue them in the sense that he doesn't allow them to continue on this pursuit of of building this city. He changes their language he scatters them so they will obey the command to multiply and fill the earth. That's a mercy and grace of God that he would do that. And we need to recognize those mercies of God. So at this point, no long-term solution for sin has been, it has been established in the sense that God has established it, but he hasn't let humanity know about that yet just so there's no confusion there. But sin continues to permeate Uh, I just realized, I think I forgot when I was mentioning about the covenant, I do have a note here that, sorry, this is a little out of order, but I want to make sure I mention this. The word covenant will occur in several future key contexts in the canon. By Moses' time, which was 1450 BC, the covenant was an established part of ancient society. So anyway, just kind of going back to that real quick. So like I already said, just keep just pay attention as we go. So, okay, when does Job fit into all of this? Well, Job obviously um, was a contemporary, we think probably with the patriarchs. But before we jump into the patriarchs, I thought I'd introduce you to Job here because that way I don't have to interrupt our looking at the patriarchs. So I have for every book that we're going to look at, I have the theme. So... Um, the theme of each book actually comes from this. And those of you who are doing LBI, these should be available fairly soon. We haven't got them yet, you said, right? Um, So I got the themes out of this. And the reason why is because I wanted to keep everything the same so that you're not confused by... You can kind of come up with different ways to word the different themes of the books. And so I thought keeping it all the same would probably be most helpful. Then out of our lovely little theology book, little, um, <laughs> we have the theology from each book. Sometimes it it uh, mimics the, or mirrors the, the theme. But anyways, I'm not sure. We'll just see how time goes. I'm not sure if we will talk about these every time, but at least you have them on your page and you'll see them up there because we do have to truck, so... Okay, so we are going to interrupt. Oh, I already said that. Okay, sorry. I'm having trouble going from computer to paper here. One thing. Nope. Okay, never mind. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Okay, so the book of Job is the first of five poetical books. So we have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Several facts indicate he lived after the flood, but before Moses. The setting is in the days of the patriarchs, as I already mentioned. So the book of Job answers questions such as why are some godly people crushed by tragedy? Good question. What are the enduring values of life? Is Satan real? Is there life beyond the grave? So these are the things that, and we know Job deals with suffering. But oops, that was supposed to be green. Job displayed faith in God. So again, just seeing that that certain people did display faith and they trusted in God. So uh, we are going to read job twenty three, eight through eleven. It says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, oh, I didn't tell you guys. Are you having trouble finding Joe? You know what, if you don't know where your books of the Bible are very well, then you should be able to find in the beginning an index that shows the order of the books because we aren't going in order that they were written into the Bible. So if you need to refer back and forth, um, but Job is actually right before Psalms in case you needed to know that. So sorry, I'll go back to what I was reading here. And so this is, you know, we could, well, I just have to move. Okay, so I'm not good at this. Okay, When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. What a beautiful testimony of Job. And we don't have time to go any further than that. Breaks my heart to go this fast. (laughs) Okay, so then we have still in Genesis. Remember, we're still in Genesis. So we have the call of Abraham. Now we can actually get ourselves onto the timeline. So Abraham was born in 2000, well, let's say 2166 BC. That's probably the easiest way to say that. So he was called from Ur in 2100 BC. So he was 66 years old when God called him to come to a land that he did not know. So God introduces a developing solution to the sin dilemma. Rather than destroying humanity, he elects a person from whom he will create a nation and later send a savior, his son, Jesus Christ. So God calls Abram and Abram responds in faith. God says, go and Abraham went. So God promises to create a nation. The chosen people are key to solving the sin problem. The nation provides a visible symbol of God's grace to sinful humanity. The nation demonstrates the necessity of commitment and obedience to God. The nation illustrates the importance of exercising faith toward God. And what we're going to see over and over and over and over again is that they did not do these things. This was what they were called to do. But they failed and they failed and they failed and they failed. And very interesting to know as well. So what did God do when the world was evil in Noah's day? He wiped out almost everybody. He could have done the same thing. But he had a different plan a plan for a savior that he would send, not to wipe out humanity, but to save people to himself. So this is, this is very exciting. So in response to Abram's faith, God blesses him. Abram will see a replacement for the homeland he leaves. God promises to make a great nation from Abram. God will make a great name of him as well. God will protect him in preparation of the great nation to come. All nations will be blessed by Abram in the promise of a future Savior. Already we have seen just in the few chapters of Genesis, we have seen the goodness and kindness of God and that man is bent on his own way and pursues sin With abandon, just continually pursuing sin. And yet God is planning so early on. And this is what you're going to see all the way through scripture is how he is orchestrating time for his son to come. So Abram, chosen as a part of God's redemptive plan, is not sinless. And this ought to comfort our hearts greatly. He lies or gives half-truths about Sarah being his sister rather than his wife. He agrees to produce an heir with Hagar rather than waiting on God. And that's where Ishmael comes from. And there have been consequences because of Abraham's sin, of course we know. But God still called Abraham a friend of God. Because Abraham walked by faith in God. So... Then, uh, though not sinless, Abraham obeys God by faith. So we have... Oh, I've got to turn on this one again. Okay, so Genesis 15, 6 says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then turn all the way to the back into the New Testament to Hebrews. So those goes Philemon, Hebrews, and James, in case you need a reference there. And go to Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. And this is just describing in the New Testament Abraham's faith. So starting in verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive foreign inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For which he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder Is God. So even though Abraham was not sinless, he chose to walk by faith. So Abraham's faith invites reflection on God's character. Only one God exists in contrast to the polytheistic pagan nations around him. God relates to people on a personal level, Abraham must find security in God rather than in circumstances. And talk about needing a bit of security when you're about to sacrifice your son. God establishes a covenant with Abraham that provides a framework for the rest of the Old Testament. So then we have Isaac. And Isaac was born in 2066 B.C., Interesting side note, I didn't know this, so I included it for your benefit as well. That was the same year that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. So there you go. Now you'll never forget. Isaac is the chosen heir of faith. Abraham waited 25 years for Isaac. Faith required to receive God's blessing has been passed to the next generation So this is, well, I'll just keep going. God established his covenant with Isaac. So Genesis 17, 21. Says my, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So the same covenant that God made with Abraham, he promises to establish that with Isaac because God is establishing a nation. And so he's working that through with what will become the patriarchs. So each, but here's, here's the interesting thing. Each patriarch was individually justified by faith. They were not part of the chosen people just simply because they were born to Abraham. Each patriarch had their own personal faith in God. So then I just wanted to help you um, get a little bit of a visual here for kind of the timeline and where other People fit into this. So you can see that Terah was Abraham's father, and he had two brothers, Haran and Nahor, and Haran had Lot. Now, if you remember with Lot, and I think we're actually going to talk about this in a minute. Actually, let me just look real quick. Uh, nope, maybe we don't. Okay, so you'll remember that uh, Lot's daughters... Um, went and um, had relations with their father in order to get pregnant. And so Moab was by the oldest daughter she conceived by her father and had um, the Moabites came from that. And then the youngest daughter was Ammon and the Ammonites came from Lot. So you can see because later we're going to look at a map and you'll see how, these different neighboring enemies of theirs were often relatives distant. But anyway, very interesting. So then we have Abraham, and then he sinned with Hagar and had Ishmael. He also had Isaac by Sarah, which was the promised son. So then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And Esau, then his descendants became the Edomites. We're going to talk about that later. And then his grandson, Esau's grandson, was Amalek, who became the Amalekites. And then, okay, so this one little last thing up here. Abraham had another son by a wife later, different from Sarah, Midian, and that was the Midianites. So... Just gave you a lot of stuff. But all these names we hear all the time. We read about. So the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Midianites. Who are these people? Well, now you know who they are. So now we have Jacob. Jacob is chosen by God in the womb to rule over Esau. This is this is a result of God's election, not Jacob's character or performance. Because obviously... Jacob hadn't lived at this point, but God still decided that Jacob would be the son that would be the next patriarch in the line. So Jacob is deceitful and tricks Esau. You guys know the story. He steals Esau's birthright, selling it for a bowl of soup. And he stole the blessing as well that Esau should have received from Isaac. So he escapes, Jacob escapes Esau by fleeing to his uncle Laban in Haran. So that's 1928, just again to help you with your timeline there. Laban tricks him into marrying Leah, who was unloved by Jacob, before he could marry Rachel, who he did love. And then Jacob goes on to have 12 sons and one daughter. So through, well, we'll just keep going. That's all you need to know right now. <laughs> okay, so Jacob left Laban. So he had lived there for quite a number of years and he had established um, quite some wealth and a family and all of this. And uh, then he decides to leave Laban and move back home again. So he feared Esau as he went, though, because he had to pass through the country of Edom. At this point, so in fear of Esau, he cried out to God and wrestled with him. You remember that, demanding a blessing. So God did bless him, and at the same, now you remember that wrestle and God touched his hip, and then he walked with a limp. So at that same time, God also changed his name from Jacob to what? Israel, where we get the Israelites. So it was here that Jacob's faith in God was realized. Because really, until that point, Jacob was really kind of pursuing his own way and his own things. Until he wrestles with God and really surrenders himself to the Lord at that point. So Hosea twelve, three and four sorry this is in the middle again. Hosea Joel Amos, give you some reference there. Hosea 12, 3 and 4 says, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his, capital H, God's favor. He found him, God again, at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. So, moving on. God protects Jacob from Esau. Because, of course, Jacob is concerned. He had badly treated Esau years earlier. And yet, God protects Jacob as he makes his way home. And Esau is friendly toward him. So every promise made to Abraham and Isaac is offered to Jacob as well. Land, descendants, blessing to all people, and God's presence. So Jacob does return to the promised land. So then we come to Joseph, who was born in 1914. So I was trying to have a reference here. I'm like, oh, okay, the First World War. When did it start? 1915. Okay, so I'll just remember that Joseph was born in 1914, the other side of the the timeline. So there you go. Don't forget, okay? (laughs) The weird things we do to associate. Anyways, okay, so Jacob favored Joseph above his other children. He was the son of Rachel. Rachel, the wife Jacob loved. Jacob gifted Joseph with a coat of many colors. Jacob's favoritism caused dissension with his other sons. Of course, you shouldn't have favorites. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was taken to Egypt. So here's a date again for your timeline. 1897 BC. So Joseph continually displayed faith in God. So here we go. I have a reference on my paper. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire. So this is one example of, of Joseph's faithfulness. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There was no one greater in the house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So he could have said this great evil and sin against Potiphar, but who did he say it was against? Ultimately against God, because Joseph placed his faith in God. So Joseph is accused by Potiphar's wife and he is sent to prison, but he is summoned from prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He is promoted to second in command in all of Egypt and he began preparing for the famine to come because remember from his dreams, there was gonna be seven years of plenty and then there was gonna be seven years of famine and God placed Joseph there to be able to, to save ultimately his family who was going to become this nation of Israel. And just, just even pay attention to what God is doing. So they are in the land, the promised land at this point. There is a famine. They are going to come down to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, they are going to multiply and turn into all these people. But they aren't going to yet consider themselves a nation. Because they're still just descendants of Jacob. But as God takes them out of Egypt, at that point they become a nation. And God had to establish that. So it was no mistake how all this happened throughout history. God was preparing to create a nation so during the famine, his brothers traveled to Egypt to buy food. He is reunited with his brothers, forgiving them for their sinfulness. Jacob is brought from the promised land to settle in Egypt, which was 1875 B.C. So then a conclusion to Genesis. A portrait of God has emerged. God is the sole deity. Think about what, that quote I read from Ken Ham. And just the importance of Genesis. And think about it then in context with these things that, you, that we learn about the character of God just from Genesis. God is the sole deity. God alone creates. God alone judges sin. God alone calls, guides, and blesses Abraham and his descendants. God alone protects and delivers the people who, or the family, called Israel. Humanity is sinful yet capable through God's calling to respond in faith. So those who respond in faith are blessed. And that's what we see. And we'll continue to see. So then we move now. We have, we have left Genesis behind. And now we're moving into the Egyptian bondage. Which was 430 years in Egypt. Jacob and family enter Egypt in 1875. Exodus from Egypt was in 1445. So God remembered his covenant. So the people began to wonder all these years that they spent in Egypt. God promised. God made a covenant. Where is his promise? And they were crying out to God. And God remembered his covenant. So Exodus... 224 says so God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So then Exodus we have the primary events Israel's deliverance from Egypt through Moses. God initiates a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. So again, this is highlighted in blue because God is the one initiating that covenant. The tabernacle and priest's role in worship, we see in Exodus as well. And of course, we had to at least mention the golden calf because Israel quickly returns to sin. So God does all this miraculous stuff to deliver them out of Egypt. And yet when they get back, when they get into the wilderness, we see again and again and again. And we don't have time to look at that tonight. But again and again and again, we see them acting and responding sinfully. So then he provides deliverance. God provides deliverance through Moses. So some of the major events in Moses' life Moses is raised by the Egyptian princess for 40 years. Moses kills an Egyptian at that time, at 40 years. God uses... Now, remember what I already said, and I'm just reminding you again. God uses sinners to accomplish his purposes. So uh, Moses lives in the desert then for 40 years. So he's had 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness... God calls Moses, who eventually responds in faith. And the reason why I put eventually there is because you remember when he goes to the burning bush, and he's like, no, 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 I can't do that. And God says, yes, you can, and I will send Aaron to help you, being that you're having trouble with this. So he does obey God. And, of course, we have the ten plagues in, in, um, that Moses continued to present to Pharaoh. The initial introduction to the Passover, this is really important as well because God protects his people from the death angel in that very last plague. So again, we see the mercy and grace of God. Always we see that as God is working. And then, of course, the crossing of the Red Sea, which is miraculous. So God makes a covenant with Israel God establishes Israel as a nation. When they entered Egypt, Israel was a large family. Israel was delivered from Egypt because God made them a nation set apart for himself. So then another quote from our theology book. Israel does not become a nation because it was delivered, but rather it was delivered because, the pe- because it was the people of God. So at Sinai, God initiates a covenant with this nation, the Israelites, who are his chosen people. So Exodus 19, 5 through 8. It says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And all these words, what did the people say? All that the Lord has spoken, they did not do. And yet God was merciful. So the Israelites were set apart from the other nations. And that was the point. God was merciful. Creating this nation to himself so that they would be holy, so that they would be set apart from all the other nations. And when the other nations looked at the Israelites, they would see them as being set apart. And that would be a testimony of the goodness of God, the one and only creator and the only God. They were to worship God alone, no other gods. They were to be holy unto God. They were to reflect the character of God to the other nations. So God then gives Moses the Ten Commandments. So the tabernacle and priests' role in the worship, so we have to just at least briefly mention the tabernacle because that was such a big part Uh, Of what was going on in the time of the wilderness. So on Mount Sinai, God presents to Moses some different things. So first of all, he gives him the Ten Commandments. He gives them laws for holy living to separate them from the surrounding heathen nations. Because They needed to be separated in order for them to be holy because if they mingled and were part of those other nations, the other other nations would influence them away from God. And that is exactly what we see over and over and over and over and over again is that they were lured by the wickedness of the other nations. God was saying, be separate, be holy. You are my people. So he gave the instructions for the tabernacle. God gifted certain individuals with necessary skills to create and build the tabernacle, which I should have really put that in blue because I just think that is just so kind of God. What are the things that that God has specifically gifted you to do? That That is God's work in your life. And obviously that's a little different because we know that the Spirit came on these people and helped them to do those things. But yet I still feel like what a kind and gracious God that he would use us, that he would use those people to create the tabernacle of worship to him. So sadly, then we have the incident of the golden calf. So Moses was on, the, was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And within that time frame, those 40 days, the Israelites doubted Moses and God. Aaron so they you know they went to Aaron and said what's happened to Moses and all of this and so Aaron ended up Aaron told them to all bring their gold and he sculpted a golden calf from all the stuff that they donated the people turn to idol worship then because now they're like oh this golden calf this is my god now the the uh, excuse me to purge the wickedness Levites loyal to God slew 3,000 men who worshiped the idol So we can look at that as unbelievers do and go, why would God have his people kill 3,000 people? Just like that. Because God had called them to be holy. What is the issue of sin? The wages of sin is death. So is there any kindness in letting people continue in their sin? No. And so God... God wiped out 3000 people through the Levites that day to separate his people from sin because sin destroys. So we have then Leviticus. So there there are a few, let's see, I think I can see this. Quotes here. Actually, I'll talk about the other side first. So it presents the book of Leviticus presents the sacrificial system. It establishes God as holy and set apart. God sets the standard for holiness. Only God can make Israel a holy people. And then we have again, God renews his covenant with his people. So we kind of got a lot of reading right here to do. And praise the Lord that printed there because I'm going to go through Leviticus 26, but I'm not going to read every verse because it's too long. So if you can get there and just kind of skim along with me, I'm going to start in verse 1, 1 through 4, and then kind of skip as I go. So this is what it says. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and, and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season. So pay attention to what he's saying here. Pay attention to the promises he's giving. These are really important for later. So that you... So that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear fruit. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. So all these things... All these blessings. Imagine how great life could have been. If they would have obeyed. But then we continue. I will... Excuse me, verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out these commandments, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield fruit. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you. Hmm. Okay, think about what he just said, and we're going we're gonna to see about that later. I will, what does he say? Scatter you among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. Listen to the promise of this amazing God that is our God. He says, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob if they would repent when they sinned. So we have here this amazing covenant promise that God gives the Israelites. If you obey me, your life will be wonderful. But they pursued sin. So I do have a couple of quotes here, and this is again from the theology book. At the core of the sacrificial system lie such familiar principles as God's holiness, human depravity, the high cost of sin, the personal nature of sin, and God's willingness to forgive. Entirely amazing. Sacrifices offered without faith... Repentance and humility are not sacrifices offered in obedience. Forgiveness does not come because an animal has been slaughtered out of habit. And I just included some of these just because I want you to think about it. Just because they would go through the actions, I mean, we saw this a lot during Jesus' time. They were still doing sacrifices, but it meant nothing. So that's what the point he's making here. It needs to be offered in faith. The fact that Jesus' death was a final, non-repeatable, and sufficient sacrifice makes it superior to the perpetual nature of Leviticus's offering. Christ settles the matter of atonement in one act. While the older system requires ongoing sacrificial acts, thus, though forgiveness is extended through animal sacrifice, the work of Christ replaces the Old Testament system by rendering it ineffective by comparison, but more importantly, by rendering it obsolete by divine decree and divine self-sacrifice. After Christ's death, the old system no longer applies to the people of faith. So just a really great, succinct explanation there of why we no longer have the sacrificial system that was instituted in Leviticus as such an important part. So I wanted to give you, again, a reference of where the people were. So you can see in the, the small uh, little part of the map there, that little triangle, that was where they were. That was the wilderness. And then I wanted to give you kind of go back and look at where that was so it was just north of Saudi Arabia on the Mediterranean Sea next to Egypt you can see Iraq so you get a feel for where they were wandering especially as we look at Numbers and Deuteronomy so here we go into Numbers and they were in the wilderness for 40 years So God moves to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. How many times are we seeing the same thing? God moves to fulfill his covenant again and again and again. A year had passed since the Exodus. Men from each tribe were counted for the purpose of going to war. So when you get to numbers and you're seeing all the lists of all the men and all of that, well, that's what it was. They were numbering the people to go to war. So God will use Israel to punish Israel. Canaan's sins in holy war. So Canaan needed punishment for their sin, much like the people in the days of Noah when God destroyed them with the flood. This time God would destroy the wickedness through holy war with his chosen people. Two things would be accomplished. Number one, evil would be destroyed. And number two, obedience in his people demonstrated dependence on and faith in God. So then they send 12 spies into Canaan to get a feel for the land. And of course, we know what happened. Ten were terrified. But Joshua and Caleb trusted God and said, no, we can go. The people doubted God, other than Joshua and Caleb, and they feared the Canaanites. So the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years as a result of their lack of faith, their their lack of trusting God, that God could go before them into Canaan. So Numbers 14, 29 through 31 says this, Your corpses will fall in this wilderness even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of, uh, I'm not sure how to say that, Jephthah, and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land. Which you have rejected. So, God tells them that they will wander because of their lack of faith. So, just an important note here as the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, so you can kind of see the little map there with that little squiggly line and you can see their journey from Mount Sinai, and then they go up. So see where they kind of loop down around Edom right there? Well, they had wanted to pass through Edom. Now remember, who are the Edomites? They are the descendants of Esau. So they are considered relatives. And the Edomites said, no, there's way too many of you, and you're going to destroy our land, and we will not let you come through. So, of course, this caused great discomfort. That's the The fill-in there. Great discomfort to the Israelites in having to go way around. And it is interesting, as we will see, the book of Obadiah, the little minor prophet, he prophesies to the Edomites talking about their doom to come. And one of the reasons is because they had no care or concern for God's people. So we have... And this I showed you earlier to give you kind of an overview there. But we have the, well, let me give you this note first. So I wanted you to see the Israelite neighbors. And keep in mind that, and I kind of said this earlier, but these people that were considered to be their neighbors were their distant relatives. And they were the ones that were continually leading them into sin and fighting and warring with them. So you can see down on the bottom, you can see where Edom is. So off to the right, you can see Moab and then the Amorites and and Ammon up there um, and Amalek as well. So I'm not going to go through all of this. Um, I guess, um, yeah, okay, so your ins. the Moabites were descendants of Lot and the oldest daughter, and then the Edomites were descendants of Esau. So then we have as well, here in Numbers, the whole incident with Balak and Balaam. Uh, But before we get there, just a couple of other things. The Israelites continually pursued what? Sinfulness. Continually pursued it. And yet God acted graciously, remembering his covenant with Abraham, and he did not destroy them. So we have the example ...of Balak, who was the king of the Moabites. So, remember where Moab is. So, Balak was the king of Moab there on the bottom right. So, Balak requests of Balaam, who was not an Israelite, that he would curse the Israelites. So, God forces Balaam instead to bless the Israelites... Balak realizes, so Balak is the king, he realizes Israel must stop worshiping Yahweh. Because if they stop worshiping God, then God will not bless them. So Balaam advises the Moabite women to seduce the Israelites. Because if the women, the the sinful pagan women, would come down and seduce the Israelite men, the men would pursue the women instead of pursuing God. And then God would not bless them any longer. So rampant sexual sin ensues. And then we end up with Numbers 25, 3, and then verses 5 and 6. So it says this. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. So remember who the Midianites were. Relatives as well. Distant in the sight of Moses, and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked." So then, okay, we've had all that sin going on. Now look just a couple verses later. God renews his covenant. So Numbers 25, starting in verse 12, says, Therefore, say... Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. So uh, that's referring to Phinehas there. But still you see the kindness of God. So now we move into Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is composed mostly of Moses's farewell addresses and the topics include remembrances of the past. So uh, another book that I used quite a bit of is Jensen's survey of the Old Testament, which I also really like. Great book, great resource. So that's where this quote is from. And he says this: See how it has been for the past forty years. Whenever this nation obeyed God, it has been blessed, and whenever it has disobeyed Him, it has been punished. For th- therefore, in the future, obey. <clears throat> pretty, pretty obvious. So, anyway, continuing with the topics of Moses' farewell addresses, uh, he. Um, I guess addresses commandments for the present. Yeah, I was trying to wrap my mind around what I was saying there. Sorry. Options affecting and options affecting the future. So then the key subject of Deuteronomy is God's covenant with the people. Deuteronomy is the Bible's full-scale. So again, I'm quoting from Jensen's. Deuteronomy is the Bible's full-scale exposition of covenant concept and demonstrates that God's covenant with his people is a proclamation of his sovereignty and an instrument for binding his elect to himself in a commitment of absolute allegiance. So turn with me then to Deuteronomy 29, and we'll read verse 10 and 13. And it says, You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God, just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then uh, flip over to chapter 30 and we'll read verses 15 through 18 as well. And it says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. In that, I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But... If your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. So we see again and again the promise of God here. And Moses is reiterating that to the people as they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. And remember that Moses was not able to enter the land of Canaan because you remember the incident where he was told to speak to the rock. And what did he do? He struck the rock. And God said, because of that, you will not go into the promised land. So as he is... Encouraging the people as they get ready to go. He is reminding them of this covenant that he has made with them. So, not sure where halfway is. Maybe I'll talk for just a couple more minutes and then we'll take a little bit of a break. A very short break. Got a lot of material to cover still. So, okay. Then we come to Joshua. And Joshua becomes... Israel's leader after Moses the Israelites were to destroy the Canaanites in holy war because they would draw the Israelites away from worshiping God and we already talked about that earlier the land was divided according to the 12 tribes or the 12 sons of Jacob each tribe was to destroy the inhabitants of their parcel of land The Israelites did not do as God commanded. Ooh, shock. (laughs) Caleb, however, remember who Caleb was. So Joshua went into the land and Caleb went with him. And they said, no, we can go into the land. Now, remember how long ago that was? 40 years ago. And they trusted God. And yet they had to stay in the wilderness all this time as well. So now they are going in, Joshua and Caleb. So Caleb was the spy who trusted God, was also the uncle of Othniel who became Israel's first judge. Othniel also married Caleb's daughter. So I just wanted you to see the connection there because it's just interesting that Caleb trusted God and we see that in Joshua and then his, so his nephew, they could do this back then, his nephew married his daughter. Um, but then Othniel became the first judge because obviously we have judges right after uh, Joshua. But I want you to see here on this map. So the significant events in the book of Joshua were crossing the Jordan. And then, well, let me talk about the map first and then I'll go back over to those other things. So Remember that each tribe was allocated a parcel of land. And when each tribe went in to settle, they were supposed to wipe out all the pagan Canaanites that were there. Why? Because they were a holy nation set apart unto God. And if the, the wicked, idolatrous pagans were allowed to continue to live, they would lead the Israelites into sin. And why is that a problem? Because sin destroys. Sin leads to death. And God knows this. And so he is setting his people up to protect them. And to to lead them into holiness and righteousness which is best for them. So you can kind of get a feel for all the different tribes there and how they settled in the land. So then we have the crossing of the Jordan. And then setting up stones of remembrance. And I just have always loved this, especially for parents. So we're going to read this together. Joshua 4, 21 through 24. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come saying, now remember they were all, each tribe was supposed to take a stone out of the Jordan um, and they were going to make a memorial with it. So just in case you weren't sure where I was going there. So he says, when your children say, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may What? Fear the Lord your God forever. So they were to set up these stones as a memorial to remember so that they would not turn back to sin and pursue sin and idolatry. So other significant events in the book of Joshua was, of course, we know Jericho. Remember Achan's sin, and as a result of him stealing stuff from Jericho, then when they went in to fight Ai, which should have been such an easy conquer, they were defeated because of the, the sin that was hidden in their midst. And then we don't have time to talk about all the other events. So the death of Joshua was approximately 1390. So, I think we will take a brief break for, let's take a five minute break, go, oh uh, yeah. That slide was on our yep. Oh, sorry. No problem. Anyways, you are dismissed for five minutes. Um, go get a drink, get coffee, use the restroom, and we'll start again. Yeah. Guys, we're going to go ahead and get started again. So we can keep trucking here. So one other thing is you guys are taking your seats. This is the other book that I have used. So some of these uh, pictures that you've got on the PowerPoint of different maps and things, I have taken out of this, which partly that was because those of you who are going to be in LBI, I just think familiarity is helpful. Looking at the same things is helpful. But this is a very little book of Old Testament survey, but it is still a fantastic book. And the reason why, especially if you're a really visual person, it's just a beautiful book. So if you like colors and pictures, this is a fantastic book. So anyway, I've used this one a lot as well. Uh, author Ben Ware, um, Paul Ben Ware. Okay, so moving on here with Judges. <coughs> So Judges, the period of Judges comes right after Joshua. So Judges 21, 25, uh, we're going to begin by reading that. And this kind of sets the tone for the book of Judges. So it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And listen to this, this line. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the attitude and tone during this period of time in Israelites' history is perhaps the bleakest time or the darkest time in Israel's history. So the period of the Judges was uh, 332 years, and then it started in 1375 through 1043, So I know that you're probably not going to remember these dates because I don't remember these dates either. But the point is that it at least helps you track as we're going. And it kind of gives you a general idea of, okay, so what's the chronology? And you're probably not going to remember a lot of the dates, but particularly as we get to David, like some of those I think can be really helpful as well. And just general, like, okay, so when was Abraham? Oh, like 2100. Um, So just remembering some of those dates can be helpful and then you can kind of fill in the rest of it so there were 12 judges in the book of judges two eli and samuel actually were in the book of first samuel but eli and samuel both were considered judges so the israelites lived in a continual cycle of so you can see your little picture there of idolatry bondage repentance delivers deliverance and rest so very quickly let me explain to you what that means so the people were continually going after idolatrous idolatrous practices worshiping other gods living very very wickedly and so what god would do is he would bring in then these nations around them to judge them and he would put them under bondage by these other pagan nations and then what happened is eventually the Israelites would cry out to God. And when they would cry out to God in repentance, then God would deliver them from this nation that was oppressing them, and he would give them rest. But the problem is that what? They are continually pursuing sin. And so in their pursuit of sin, they would go back after idolatry, And then God would have to send another nation again to put them into bondage until they recognized their need for God. And then they would cry out in repentance. And round and round they went. Sometimes these periods of times were 30 years, 40 years, that that it took for them to um, come to repentance and all these different things. So this continual cycle. So some of the significant characters. Now remember... Othniel was the first judge, and I mentioned that in Joshua. And who is Othniel? Caleb's nephew, exactly. Who was the one who went into the land of Canaan and said, yes, we should trust the Lord. So there you go. Okay, then we have Deborah, and we're not going to get into that, or Gideon or Samson, but these are just some of maybe your more familiar judges that you would find in, in that book. But we have to keep moving, so now we are going to look at Ruth. And Ruth, actually, the time period for that was during the period of the Judges. So that's the setting of the book of Ruth. So Naomi and her family traveled to Moab, and you guys remember where Moab is. We already looked at it. It was kind of down there to the south a little bit. So Naomi and her family traveled to Moab to escape the famine in Israel. Okay, this ought to immediately make red flags go off in your brain. Why was there famine in the land? Because they disobeyed. Because if they wouldn't have been disobedient, remember, they were going to have this lush, wonderful rain, and everything was going to grow, but there was famine. And so to escape the famine, they went down to Moab. Naomi's son married a Moabite woman. But, well, sons married Moabite women. That should have been sons. After all, their husbands died. So Naomi's husband and her two sons both died. Naomi then moved back to Israel. And Ruth accompanied her. And you remember, so Ruth 1, 16 and 17. And really, I should have had some sort of reference here to Ruth and her faith in God. So it says... Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. And you remember that Ruth goes back to... Uh, Israel with Naomi, and she ends up marrying Boaz and ends up being the great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was to come because she had faith in God. So we have 1 Samuel then. So we're going to move much quicker. The first part of what we were talking about, I really wanted to lay a deeper foundation so that you could really see and understand both. Humanity's continual pursuit for sin, and to see God continually pursuing the covenant that He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now we're just going to fly a lot faster. We're not going to go deep into a lot of these books. So just so that you're aware, um, just going to kind of really give a very brief survey here. So Hannah prays for a son. So the book begins with Samuel's birth at 1100 BC. And then ends with Saul's death in 1011 BC. So main characters in the book are Eli, Samuel, King Saul, and David. So some of the main events were the capture of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines. And you remember when that happened, Eli found out the news and fell over backwards and broke his neck and died. Also, then Saul is anointed as king in 1043 B.C. So this is really important part of Israel's history because now we have come into the monarchy time period. We've come into the time of the kings. So Saul is the first king, and that occurs in 1043 B.C. So also, some of the events in this book is David and Goliath, then the monarchy is taken from Saul because of Saul's sin. So he, Jonathan his, and, and Saul's descendants, they are not allowed to continue to be kings uh, over the land. So David is then secretly anointed and grows in popularity with the people because, remember, he was out warring and getting very popular as he was even hiding from Saul. And David, of course, is hunted by Saul during this time as well. Some very bleak times for David during this time period. So then we move to 2 Samuel. And we have some of the significant characters during 2 Samuel. We have David, of course, who becomes king. And we have Bathsheba that he committed adultery with. We have Nathan the prophet who came to confront David in his sin. And we could have mentioned several of his sons, of of David's sons, but we will only mention Absalom because, remember, he tried to take the kingdom from David. And in the end, uh, he was the one that had all the hair and got caught in the tree and then was killed, not by that, but somebody came and killed him. So then some of the significant events during the, the book of or in the book of, of 2 Samuel. David does become king in 1011 BC. Initially only the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom. So when David first became king, not all the rest of the tribes accepted him as the king because they still thought that Saul's line should reign. And of course, Jonathan was dead. And so Saul's son, Ithbosheth, actually reigned for seven years in the northern kingdom. And David only at first was king of Judah for, for those first seven years. So then David asked to build the temple because David was a man after God's own heart. David loved God, and he felt like if he had a beautiful home and God lived in a tent made of fabric and animal skin, he thought, this isn't right. God should live in a place much better than where I live. But God actually forbids David because he says David is a man of war. And so later, actually, Samuel will be the one to build the temple. So God establishes the Davidic covenant with David. So the Davidic covenant is a subdivision or extension of the Abrahamic covenant and develops further the promise of a nation and a king. Since the Davidic covenant looks ahead to David's greater son Jesus, there are some clear prophetic implications to this covenant. So number one, Israel must be preserved as a nation and eventually return to the land of Palestine. Number two, David's son, Jesus the Messiah, must return to rule over the covenanted kingdom. Number three, a literal earthly kingdom for the nations of Israel must be instituted over which Christ will eventually reign. So that is the Davidic covenant. Really, it is... um, A step further, I guess, from um, the earlier covenant. And then, of course, in our book as well, we have David's sin with Bathsheba, which... As we said earlier, Nathan confronted him and David repented. But there were consequences that came to bear because of his sin. And it really destroyed David's family as a result. And David suffered greatly under the heartache of all that went on with his children. So I'm not going to say much about Psalms. But you do need to know that David wrote a lot of the Psalms, not all of them. So we're just tucking that right in here by 2 Kings because David wrote a lot of the Psalms. And then we're moving to 1 Kings. So significant characters in 1 Kings are Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Ahaz, Jezebel, and Elijah. So some of the significant events. Solomon is anointed as king in 971 BC. And then David dies. Solomon oversees construction of the temple, which was a seven year project. Solomon's disobedience to the command to God's commands. He multiplied horse, horses, wealth, and wives. So a little note on that. The horse was the basis, so this is from the Ben Ware book that I showed you guys. So the horse was the basis of military might, but God wanted Israel to trust him. Wealth would breed independence from God. Many wives, often part of treaties made with foreign kings, would bring their idols with them and in the process turn the king's devotion away from the Lord." So when we see that Solomon directly disobeyed some of these commands to not gain horses or wealth or wives, and Solomon did all three, and it led to the corruption of his own heart and the corruption of the nation as well. So Solomon's sin resulted in a divided kingdom. So again, a very significant event in the history of Israel. Because you remember when we first looked at that timeline, if it's in front of you guys. um, Let me see. Nope, we don't have that timeline quite yet. So uh, you remember that we had first the United Kingdom, which was... Saul and then David and Solomon and then we get to Solomon and now we have a divided kingdom. So uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam become the kings of this divided nation that we now have. So uh, what was the last thing on here? Uh, Rehoboam became the, the king of Judah which was the south and Jeroboam became the king of Israel which was in the north. So again, we don't have time to um, spend a lot of time here with Song of Solomon, but Solomon did write this, so we're tucking this in right here. If you need any help with this, remember last year Chris and Ron did a marriage conference. You can go back and listen to that. That's all I'm going to say. We have Proverbs as well. I think you all probably at least know what Proverbs is, even if you aren't familiar with what's in it. And also Solomon wrote that as well. And Solomon also wrote Ecclesiastes. And so I've described a little bit of Solomon's life now, that he started out building the temple for the Lord, and then he, he disobeyed the command that God had given him. And despite all the wisdom that God had given him, he still pursued sinfulness. And so this is the conclusion that... Solomon says at the end he writes oh no we won't look at that okay we'll go to Ecclesiastes oh I can't see anything off and on I don't know what to do with these things um okay so let me find Ecclesiastes really quick So Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14 says this, and this is Solomon's conclusion to all of that. He gained everything. He had everything you could imagine, and this is what he says. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil well we could just be doing all kinds of application and it kills me not to but I think that right there is really good go home and think about that because at the end of having it all and then being distracted by his own desires and and sinfulness this is what he says at the end fear God because that's the most important thing so Then I want you to look at this little chart we have here because I want you to see what's going on. So we have 1000 BC here. Now remember Solomon became king in 971. So as you can see what's going to happen, the decline of the spiritual state of Israel and it goes down pretty steeply. So over the next 300 years approximately little less than that, we see apostasy and idolatry. And then in 722, we have God's judgment that he had warned about. We've already read about that judgment, that he was going to scatter the people among the nations. So God is going to bring judgment here in 722, and then the people are going to go into exile. Uh, so anyways, we'll leave it with that because we're going to come back and look at this again in a, little, in a little while to look at the restoration again. But I just wanted you to see the spiritual decline of the people here. So significance, though, as far as Elijah goes. So Elijah was, uh, his ministry was during 875 to 850, so about 25 years. And the significance of his ministry So we all know about Elijah, but where does he fit into everything? So he fits into 2 Kings. So he prophesied to Israel, which was the northern kingdom. Elijah means Yahweh is my God, and that was the beat of his heart. And that's why, even though it doesn't talk about faith there, that's why I put it in green. His message was to turn from Baal to worship the one true God. So he confronted Ahab and Jezebel. You remember that? And he predicted no rain. That should be no rain, not rain. For three and a half years causing a famine. And then he had the encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he prayed and God sent the rain. So he an interesting fact about Elijah, he did not die, but he was taken to heaven by a chariot of fire. So Second Kings two, eleven uh through thirteen says, as they were going along, so him and Elisha are together here. Because he was discipling Elisha at this point. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. So that is a brief testimony of Elijah. So <coughs> excuse me. So then we have 2 Kings here. And we are our, our significant characters in 2 Kings are Elijah, sorry, Elisha, Hezekiah, Manasseh, who remember was the most wicked king in Israel, and we have King Josiah, who was a righteous king in Judah. So significant events So in the book of 2 Kings, it covers about 250 years. And part of what it covers is the fall of Israel in 722 B.C. And Israel fell to the Assyrians. So if you look at the uh, map here, all I wanted you to see is the division between the the two... um, parts of Israel essentially. So we have what was called Israel in the north and then Judah in the south. So the 10 tribes were considered Israel and then the two tribes which were Benjamin and Judah were in the south. So then we have like I said, the fall of Israel by the Assyrians. And then we have the slow fall of Judah because uh, they didn't fall all at once. It was like three deportations. They slowly were deported to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. In 605 BC, Babylon actually defeated Assyria and Egypt and then subjugated Judah after that. So there's kind of a lot going on here in 605 BC. But that's when the first deportation started, God's first beginning judgment on Judah. So judgment had already taken place to Israel, that northern tribe, or that those northern tribes there in 722. So then... Uh, The deportations were actually 605, 597, and then 586 B.C. So there was three that happened, and they're significant. We'll mention them as we go along. So then Elisha was prophesying approximately during 850 to 795, so almost 50 years. And the significance in his ministry, or some of the things, was that he prophesied to Israel, the northern kingdom as well, And he had asked for a double portion of Elijah's blessing, and God gave it to him. An interesting fact that he actually performed double the miracles that Elijah performed. So after the Exodus, God worked through Elijah and Elisha to perform his miracles. There weren't a whole lot of other miracles going on at this time, but God was using Elijah and Elisha to do that. So then here's just another little chart to help you kind of understand the time frame. So we have 1st and 2nd Samuel is is happening at the same time as the book of 1st Chronicles. And then we have 1st and 2nd Kings at the same time as 2nd Chronicles. Just so you understand how they line up here. So it just kind of makes sense. So when you're reading through 1st, Samuel and King, or Samuel and then kings, and then chronicles. like Chronicles basically repeats only from a different perspective, because they're communicating different things, but it's covering many of the same events. So that will just help you to kind of understand that. So when we talk about the captivity, um, that really starts um, after second kings and second chronicles, essentially. So I'm not really going to talk about First and 2 Chronicles at all. So the one thing that you will see in 1 Chronicles is David's family tree. You don't even need to worry about this. I just put it there for something to look at. Uh, anyway, so we're just going to keep going to 2 Chronicles. Again, another little picture just to look at because 2 Chronicles really describes and talks about the kings. And so we see that really in 2 Chronicles. So then again, just all these little resources to try and help something connect in your brain. I know I've got a lot of them here, but we have, like I've already mentioned, we have the United Kingdom with Saul and David and Solomon. Then we have the divided uh, the divided nation where we have Israel and the ten tribes, and then we have Judah and the two tribes. And then remember how I described the single. So in this says 721 uh, so what happened is Assyria came down and conquered northern, the northern tribes of Israel. So then Judah was still left. They were not conquered yet for another quite a few years. And so that's why then we have the single uh, going on. Like they say, the United divided in single nation there or kingdom, I guess. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. So um, I think you should have this in your hand as a handout. Now you have two of these in your hand. One has a bunch of extra boxes right in the middle under the Babylonian captivity where you have red and some brown boxes. Just don't look at that side. Instead, look at the side that looks like mine. You can look at the other side later. But I want to try and keep it as simple as possible because when you look at all those boxes, I don't know what you guys, but I just get overwhelmed and then I want to put it down. (laughs) So I tried to make it as simple as possible. So again, what we have is Israel in the north, so it's on the top of your page, which is in the green. And that I put the little map on there so that you could actually visualize it. So those are all the kings that reigned during the the period of the divided nation in Israel. Then if you look down to the yellow line, you will see that those are all the kings that reigned in Judah during that divided period as well. Now, what I want you to look at and see on that little piece of paper is that we have prophets in the middle. So you'll see those coming colors as well. So we have Elijah and Elisha and do you see that they're in green? That means that they were prophesying to Israel. So they match the color that they were prophesying to. Then we have Joel, who is in yellow because he was prophesying to Judah. Does that make sense? You guys all tracking with me on that? Okay. So we also have Obadiah, and he's kind of just out there. He actually gave his prophecy to judah but it was about edom so that's why he's in navy blue and then we have jonah and we have nahum that are in red and jonah and nahum were prophesying to assyria so that's why they're in red and then the captivity so once the the uh exile had happened then we have the captivity which is in blue and then we have david excuse me not david daniel and ezekiel that are prophesying during that time and then we have the restoration which is in purple so it's important for you guys to kind of understand that because as we move forward from here i've got each little book highlighted at the top their names so that you will hopefully be able to keep straight who's who So when, and this is just a simplified version of that. So as we look at our prophets, we have Israel, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea prophesied to Israel. We have Judah, Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk all prophesied to Judah. So you kind of get what's going on here, just so that you can kind of keep track of what's going on. And it is complicated because we have two kingdoms running at the same time, both of who mostly do not follow the Lord. And so who have to have all these prophets coming and telling them, follow the Lord or you're going to receive judgment. So we will keep going. So I wanted to include this as well, this map right here, because I want you to see the extended neighbors of or the distant neighbors of Israel. And the reason why I want you to see that is because I want you to look and see, do you see Assyria kind of up at the top on the right? Assyria is who came down to Israel. So do you see Israel, the top of the purple? So they came down and defeated Israel. Well, then you had Babylonia that came quite a few years later down and then conquered Uh, Judah and remember what I you probably don't remember because I hardly remember it and I'm standing up here talking but what happened was uh, Nebuchadnezzar had gone down and defeated Egypt and on the way back then swung through and took people from Judah at the same time so don't worry if you don't remember any of that you can just block it out but anyways for those of you who do want to know there you go We'll keep going. Now here's Joel. Remember, if you look at your little if you look at your little uh, chart there, you're going to see that Joel is in yellow. And what does that mean? That he was prophesying to Judah. And I have to catch up on my notes here. Sorry, one second. So Joel is a minor prophet. And he prophesied during the time of 2 Kings. So uh, one of the things that he prophesied is he used the example of locusts. So severe plagues of locusts and drought had just devastated the land of Judah. So his purpose of prophecy was to foretell coming judgment for their sin. Because remember, they kept going right back into sin. And this, just the fact that God sent prophets to the Israelites that kept disobeying is a grace and mercy of God. Like all of this should be blue. Because why would God continue to send prophets to call them to repentance? Because he is a good and gracious, kind and merciful God. That's the kind of God that we have. So the purpose of the process, I already said that, uh, was to call them to repentance, explain that final justice will be complete in the events of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord refers to the messianic kingdom at the end of the world when God's final judgment will fall on unbelieving nations. And we don't have any more time to get into it than that, but at least give you a tiny definition. And these books are the minor prophets that we're looking at right here. Well, they're going to be kind of interspersed with the major prophets because they're on the timeline. But uh, hopefully a little bit will stick in your mind. So then we have Obadiah. Now, remember what I said about Obadiah earlier. had He was prophesying to Edom. He had a message for Edom. Who was Edom? They were the descendants of Esau who remember when the children of Israel were traveling in the wilderness, they would not allow God's people to go through their land. So the Edom, so descendants of Esau. Edomites were arrogant and self-confident. they felt secure in the city of Petra and didn't want Israel's God. So very interesting fact Petra was their. Their main city, basically. So now we go and look at it. It's this amazing thing to look at. But it's actually in the ancient, uh, the ancient land of Edom. So anyways, hopefully that can kind of help you remember it all. That Obadiah and Petra and Edom. We'll try anyway. Okay, so... Remember, they denied Israel the opportunity, I already said that, to go through the wilderness, or to go through their land when they were in the wilderness. And God was going to judge them for their rebellion against him. This is the message that Obadiah had for them. And they were judged later. So then we have Amos. Now Amos is in green. So he was prophesying to Israel. Uh, And at this time Israel was at the zenith of political and economic power and his message was very dark and very severe and the message included this the people he was talking about their sin he confronted them uh, regarding their sin then he talked about the coming judgment. The righteousness and holiness of God he addressed. And then he also talks about the mercy of God in offering deliverance. Hearts entirely turned against God and yet that's his message for them. Repent because God can bring deliverance. So then we all are familiar with Jonah. And he had a message to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. And the purpose of the book is to teach God's people their responsibility of delivering the message of salvation to all people, to demonstrate that God honors repentance. Again, we're seeing grace and mercy of God. To show Christians that Christ's death and resurrection have always been the divine plan. And very interesting fact again, Nineveh, as you remember, did repent when Jonah went. And of course, Jonah was all up in arms about this because the Assyrians were extremely wicked. And he was absolutely appalled that God would allow them to repent and not just wipe them all out. And yet, God does honor repentance. But, however, they turned back to their sinfulness Within a hundred years from that time frame. Because later then God sends Nahum back back with a message for the Assyrians because of their wickedness. So then we have Hosea who also was prophesying to Israel. The northern kingdom. He ministered to Israel during the Assyrian invasion of 722 B.C so basically the theme of hosea and you're probably familiar with this as well was the tender loving the tender loving god offers one last chance of restoration to hard-hearted adulterous israel does it not blow your mind i know we're just like flying by really fast and just hearing a lot of facts and numbers and things But does it not blow your mind the kindness of God to continue to offer deliverance and forgiveness to sinful people? Israel is the unfaithful wife who has deserted her husband and gone after other lovers. God, through Hosea, invites her Israel back. So then we have Isaiah, who is a major prophet. So the difference between major and minor is majors are big Books and minors are really small books. Their messages are both very powerful. So Isaiah, the prophets, uh, the prophets all shared. So this is just a little bit of background just about the prophets in general. But the prophets all shared the same purpose. They were to deliver a message from God to unbelieving and apostate Israel. So four prophetic points in history that each prophet was Uh, basically giving. So the prophetic points were within their own time frame, like what was it that they were living in their own time period, the threatening captivities that were coming, Assyrian and the Babylonian, the restoration and the coming of the Messiah. So this is what they're saying as well. There is a Messiah that is coming and tremendous hope in the future, but the Israelites shut their ears and did not listen. And then, of course, to the millennial kingdom. And they didn't all talk about all this, but basically this is scattered throughout the, the um, prophets. So Isaiah is called the, evangel- the evangelical prophet, speaking of Christ's redemption with almost as much clarity as the New Testament. Remember Isaiah 53, of course, we can't forget that. So Isaiah's message was the coming, and you can really divide the book of Isaiah into two parts. So the first part is the coming captivity of the Babylonians, which is chapters 1 through 39, and then the coming of Christ, which is chapter 40 through 66. And if you read through... Isaiah, you know, like the first half is very heavy um, and, and sad, but then you get to the second half and it's, I mean, we, we like to take our verses from Isaiah 40 and 41, right? <laughs> well, that would be why. So then we have Micah. The main theme of Micah is that God will send judgment for Judah's sin, but pardon is still offered. So he prophesied during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So not all of those were very long, as you can see on your little uh, timeline there. Ahaz had formed an alliance with Tiglath-Pilesar, who was the king of Assyria at this time. This introduced idolatry, moral decay, corrupt leadership by false prophets, etc. at this time. And then it is a predictive book, and it prophesied the location of Jesus' birth. So that is a picture of Bethlehem there for you. So you can keep Micah and Bethlehem. Okay, so Nahum. Remember, we had Jonah who prophesied to the Assyrians, calling them to repentance, which they did. And then they turned back to their idolatry, back to their very wicked ways. So now, instead of calling them to repentance, we have woe on Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. Uh, Nahum wrote between 663 and 612 B.C., somewhere in there. Assyria fell to the Babylonians and Medes in 612 B.C., so, Assyria defeated Israel in 722. So, remember with our numbers here that it gets a little confusing because I meant to say this at the beginning and I forgot, but. We start with large numbers and get small going down until the time of Christ's birth, which we get down to zero, and then we start counting up again. So it does get a little confusing when we're like, wait, Assyria fell in 612, and then they defeated Israel in 722? Well, that's because when you go backwards, 722 is before 612. So Nahum pronounced basically Assyria's doom. And as I already said, over 100 years earlier, Jonah had called them to repentance. They did repent, but then turned back to their sinful heathen practices. So then we have Zephaniah. And Zephaniah wrote to Judah during the reign of righteous king Josiah. Josiah, at age 21, began a six-year reform in Judah. It's a fascinating Uh, account to go and read that if, if you want to take the time to do that. Zephaniah condemns the sin over which Josiah lamented, and that's what he was writing about. So he prophesied judgments for Israel and then prophesied restoration. So partly fulfilled, the restoration was partly fulfilled after the Babylonian captivity. So we're going to look at that. That's the purple on your sheet. So we'll look at the captivity. But... It will be fully fulfilled at the day of the Lord when Christ comes back and reigns. So then we also have the book of Habakkuk. And he was the last minor prophet before the nation of Judah went into Babylonian captivity. So he prophesied During the dark apostasy, and remember from our little chart how the moral decay and the spiritual decay of the the nation continued to spiral downward. So he was prophesying during that very dark time. And the message God does not overlook sin, and then the righteous shall live by faith, which is so much hope. Live by faith, be righteous. Much of the book is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. This, I think, is my favorite minor prophet. I love the book of Habakkuk. He wrestled with why God would use a sinful pagan nation to bring judgment on God's own people. Why in the world would he take these wicked, wicked people and bring judgment on his people? But then at the very end, this is his response to God. So Habakkuk 3... 17 through 19. Oh, have to look it up. Says this, and this is just beautiful. When you're wrestling through things, read the book of Habakkuk and then pray that the Lord would give you the attitude that he has. Though the fig tree should not blossom, And there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places." So, so much hope just in his attitude there. So then we have Jeremiah, who's one of the major prophets. Jeremiah prophesied mainly to the Jews in Jerusalem before the city fell, which was approximately 627 to 585. And remember that the final deportation was 586. So the lone prophet to Jerusalem... He was the lone prophet to Jerusalem for 20 years before it fell, and he was referred to as the weeping prophet. And it's interesting to kind of read a little bit about Jeremiah because he was, just personality-wise, he was considered a gentle, patient, candid, and passionate kind of a man. And really like almost in contrast to the, the ministry and responsibility that God had given him to proclaim judgment on his people. So he had deep emotions and steadfast so these deep emotions that had compassion on his people, and yet he was steadfastly resigned to the truth. And so he would proclaim the truth despite the emotions that he, fell be- that he felt behind it. He was utterly devoted to preaching God's message. And what was this message? Rebuke people's sin, warning of God's righteousness, invitation for God's grace and then consolation of future hope. So I'm not going to say tons about Lamentations, but we do need to read the verse that you guys are all familiar with and think about it being from Jeremiah as we look at this. So I do want you to see this this little chart on the side here. So that is a picture of Jerusalem, and then the little chart, uh, you kind of get an idea. So the book of Jeremiah is warning of the fall of Jerusalem, and the book of Lamentations is mourning over the fall of Jerusalem. So Lamentations 3.21, this is what Jeremiah says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Just one little side note here. The things that we face, the trials that we face, it is, It pales often in comparison to what was happening during the time of the prophets. If you are wrestling, read through the Old Testament and listen to the prophets. Listen to the hope that they give. These little nuggets are so powerful in our own wrestle, in the struggles in our own lives. But we don't have time to talk about it, so keep keep on trucking. So anyways, because that's where I like to go. I always like to go to the application. I had a reason for putting this here. Okay, so the reason why I have this here is just because I want you to look at your paper and you're going to see, see those blue lines that are coming down? Uh, Those are the deportations, the three separate deportations. So the first and the shortest line should be 605. So you can just write that in. Then the long line is 597. So basically, Nebuchadnezzar came in and took people, and then he came again, and he came again. So then the last one is 586. So now you have clear to look at later. And it does say it up in that little box, but I wanted you to have it on the timeline as well. So now we're going to move into the captivity. And we actually really are winding down. I know we're late. (laughs) So uh, we have Daniel here. Daniel was part of the first deportation to Babylon. So in 605, that first time when Nebuchadnezzar came through, he took some of the choice young men to raise up as rulers who he would have rule over their own people for later. So Daniel and uh, his friends were taken in 605 BC. The exile started counting from 605 and lasted for 70 years. Two more deportations followed, which you already wrote down. Daniel was a prophet mainly to King Nebuchadnezzar's courts in Babylonia. Important characters in the book are Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son. Then we have Darius the Mede, and we have Cyrus the Persian, which I wish we had time to go into the history of that just to make it all clear, but we don't, so we'll just keep going. The book is the key to interpreting all other biblical prophecy because Daniel talks about the 70 years and the significance of that and, and prophecy. Daniel reveals the details of God's plan for both the nations and for Israel. He prophesied of and, and, shouldn't be and, an eventual messianic kingdom to come. So then we have Ezekiel. So Daniel was taken during 605, that first deportation. Ezekiel was taken at the second deportation. He was a prophet mainly to the exiles in Babylonia before and after the fall of Jerusalem. He prophesied to the people in exile because captivity did not stir the first contingents to repentance and this is an interesting thing even though they had been taken into captivity it still did not initially stir their hearts to repentance and we look at that and we're aghast but yet we have to look at our own hearts to see our own stubbornness and our own love of sin so often in our own hearts they did not believe Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians of course which it entirely did so his message was, it was sin that brought the people's judgment of exile. The exile would last for 70 years. And this is interesting as well. False prophets taught that there would be an earlier return. And I just this just kind of, I guess, resonated with me because every time God proclaims something, there are always false prophets out there saying something different. We have got to be so careful. Don't go to the internet for your theology and for your application of biblical things. Because we can be led astray just exactly the same way that they were. So anyways, future restoration of Israel for for a believing remnant. And again, this is hope in God. Okay, so I told you we would come back to this right before we went into the restoration. We're almost done. So we have... Uh, Right here, you can see 538 with the restoration. And I want you to look at the squiggly line because you can see that the the spiritual condition of the Israelites or the Jews at this point never went down as low as it was during the time of the exile, but they still were struggling to walk with the Lord and to walk by faith. So then we have Zechariah who prophesied to them and his main message was to bring spiritual revival to exhort the jews to finish rebuilding the temple which remember they had they had gone to do and i think i mentioned that coming up here the project had been discontinued for 14 years so he was to comfort and console the people prophecy about the coming messiah And uh, the book is referred to as the book of Revelation in the Old Testament. So if you've ever tried to read through Zechariah, you might be a little confused at times. John MacArthur has a fabulous series on Zechariah because I didn't understand it. And I went there and listened to it. I couldn't tell you all about it now, but it was so good. So I need to go back and listen to it again. And he makes it so easy to understand. So just write that down if you want to know about that for later. And also it's known for the visions of the four horses. So then we have Haggai, who is referred to as the successful prophet. Wouldn't you all like that topic? Because none of the rest of them got that. So no prophet saw a faster response to his message He prophesied to the Israelites or to the Jews after they returned to Jerusalem from exile. His main message was to complete the temple structure. He is referred to as the prophet who set it with bricks. The people had become complacent, focusing on themselves rather than on God. And so he came back to stir them up to fear the Lord and to do what they had been called to do. And had very quick results. The people responded to him. And then we have Ezra. So remember where Ezra fits into our actual Bible. It's very confusing because Ezra is actually happening at the very end. Like chronologically at the end of the Old Testament time period. So three key leaders of the restoration. Jews are returning home. That's what the restoration is. So Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah all were uh, ministering to the people that were going home. So Ezra was a priest and a scribe. His key ministry was to revive the people's interest in Scripture. So in Ezra 7.10, it says... For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statues and ordinances in Israel. That was his goal. That's what he sought to do. <clears throat> the book shows how God fulfilled his promises. He raised up leaders and prophets, which were Haggai and Zechariah. They moved, the people actually moved back to the land. So remember, this is God fulfilling his promises. This is really important because if God doesn't fulfill his promises, we can't trust him. So really, that should be in blue again. So they did move back to the land. They rebuilt the buildings, including the temple, and then they were restored to worship and reestablished God's law. So then right about the same time as the restoration that was going on in the land of Israel, we have Esther. And Esther is in the same time period but in a different place because she's actually living in Susa in Persia, the same city where Daniel had received a vision from God 80 years earlier. That's where she's living. So the historical account took place between the first and second return of and let's just go back to... Oops, that's the wrong way. The go, go back here. So in between the first return, which was 536, was Zerubbabel, and then the second return, which was Ezra, in 458. So Esther happened in between those two things, just to give you time frame on that. So the events in that book cover more than 10 years. Major purpose of the book was Jews living in exile were saved from extermination by a Gentile monarch. And though God is not mentioned, his presence is evident in the narrative. And then, of course, Esther demonstrated faith because she trusted God to help her save her people. So then we have Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was focusing on the rebuilding of the walls. So Ezra focused on the rebuilding of the temple. And then Nehemiah comes Uh, as that third uh, encouragement to help the people and he focused on rebuilding the wall and if you remember anything about that as they built the wall they did it with a sword in one hand building with the other hand to protect them from their enemies so the book seeks to show how God favored his people it shows the restoration of the broken down city walls it shows the restoration of the jews failing faith and praise God for that because their faith was restored and then the context, just time-wise, while well, Nehemiah served as governor of Judah, Ezra was ministering to the spiritual needs of the Jews at that time. So they were, they were working together at the same time. So then we have the very last book of the Bible, Malachi. Uh, the temple project was completed at this time. Jews had been back in the land for 100 years. They are uh, addressed the same. So Malachi addressed the same sins as Nehemiah, which was laxity, corruption of priests, mixed marriages, neglect of tithes. These are the things that Malachi, because remember the tendency of the Israelites was always to go back towards sin. So the main messages that were addressed are loving God, the sins of the priests and the people, Judgment for sin and blessings for righteousness because we serve a gracious and kind God. So the book is the connecting link between the Old Testament and the New Testament to come. So I'm not going to go there. Well, I'm really not going to go anywhere. (laughs) So you have those things um, and you can take them home and look at them. But just... As um, we close here, so there was 400 years of silence between Malachi and then when Jesus came as a baby. And then after that, there was about 100 years as Jesus had his ministry. And we don't even know anything about the first 30 years of that. And then Jesus had his ministry, which was three years. And then the early church was started by the apostles after that. So really, I think you guys probably have a fairly good grasp on the New Testament. And really, it gets so muddy with the Old Testament. And I know that was really fast, and I hope it wasn't confusing. I have prayed so hard that the Lord would help you guys to understand all this stuff, but you can look at some of those charts. Take it home and refer to it if if you need to, Um, and like I said, you know, don't worry about it if you don't remember all the details because I can tell you what, next week if you ask me questions, I will not remember all the details. Because there's just so much information to remember. But being able to see the picture and how it fits together is important. But ultimately, what's the whole point? The whole point is that we would see the character of our God who established in Genesis 3 to send a Savior to redeem mankind from their sin. And man will always pursue their sin apart from a Savior, Jesus Christ, and God working in our hearts. So on that note, let's thank the Lord and you guys can go. Father, we do just thank you so much for your precious and wonderful word. We thank you for... Laying it out, even though sometimes it seems confusing to us, but but showing us who you are, showing us that you do love wicked, sinful mankind that deserve death and hell and, and eternal punishment, and yet you have chosen to save us, and we praise you for that. Lord we pray that you would stir our hearts as we think about the coming year and the Bible studies that are coming and LBI and and all those things Lord I pray that we would not participate in any of these things with with hearts that only just desire to go through the motions but father that we would have tender and moldable hearts that can be that can be worked by your hands, and even as Job says that that in the trials and difficulties of life that you bring into our lives, that we would be refined and come forth as pure gold. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that desire that, that would cooperate with the work you're doing in our lives. I thank you for tonight. I thank you for the ladies' patience and for their willingness to be here. In your name we pray. Amen. I just want to say really quick, thank you all for coming. I could not believe as I'm looking at the signups and going, you guys are a reflection of women that want to know the word, that want to walk with God, and you encourage me by your zeal and enthusiasm to do that. So thank you. Go on and have a good night.